You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Real quick before we dive into this episode's conversation, the North Shore Mountain Bike Association just had their AGM. We had a lot more candidates than available spaces on our board of directors, which as an organization is a great problem to have. And I'm happy to report that I was re-elected to my second two-year term. And I'm certainly looking forward to focusing on 2021. Now, as always, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 82 of Frontlines. I'm joined by two guests. The first is Ian Bongard. He's the trails coordinator at the Blue Ridge Off-Road Cyclists in Roanoke, Virginia. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. And the second is Stuart Lamana. He's the president of the Blue Ridge Off-Road Cyclists, also in Roanoke, Virginia. Hi, Stuart. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I wanted to to just kind of start off by asking the same question that I asked my two guests from uh, the previous episode, and and that is just how are the the two of you doing? You know, obviously there's a lot going on in the world right now, and and all of our lives have kind of changed a little bit. So, um, with regards to kind of family and and even your your day to day work and and just your general sanity, uh, how are are you two kind of handling um, what is the the curveball of all curveballs, which is 2020? Go for it, Ian. For the past couple months, um, I've found myself working for the uh, for Rutter County Parks and Rec, um, which I've been working there for a couple years, and um, so now I'm just doing a little bit more part time stuff. So uh, while I'm not working for Roanoke County, I've been putting a lot of my time into Brock and building trails. In January, I'll be starting uh, Fire Academy, so I'm trying to put as much trail building and. Uh, as much of my effort into trail building right now that I can, because for 20 weeks, I won't be able to do much just back to basic things. So, uh, yeah, I've kind of been riding as much as I can and working on trails as much as I can while I have the opportunity to. And Stuart, what about you? I had a property management business, which I actually sold right as COVID hit. So I got out when the getting was good and, um, (laughs) It turned out to be a blessing because I have a elder parent who needs round-the-clock care, and because of COVID, we weren't able to put him in the nursing home. So I went straight into that, not making a lot of money doing that, but uh, it's rewarding in other ways, and it's given me a little bit of time to put towards trails and mountain bike advocacy. Before we kind of get into both of you and your involvement with the organization, maybe can we just start with a, a little bit of a, the history of the Blue Ridge Off-Road Cyclists? How long have they been a, around for? When did they get started? How did they get started? It's a relatively new organization. It started off as a group called Roanoke Imba, as an Imba chapter, in about 2012. Before that, most of the mountain biking trail building was done, I guess, illegally. and. Uh, without consent until they finally gave up and let us start building trails legitimately. And I believe that's when the organization was formed. And what's the the primary land manager that, uh, that you guys work with there? We work with several land managers. Um, the city, Roanoke is a strange place because we're 
uniquely blessed to be surrounded by national forests, but also we have, I think it's 14,000 acres of land that's in the reservoir that's open for mountain biking, but surrounded by national forest and the Appalachian Trail. And it's owned by the city. So usually most cities don't own such a large amount of natural area that's suitable for mountain biking. So we work primarily with the city. And of course, the county has some park land that we're able to build on as well. Outside of that, we have national forest and backcountry trails, probably in some of the greatest abundance of anywhere I've been to. And that alone, just trying to keep those trails clear is a a challenge, of course. And Stuart, how long have you been involved with the organization and and what got you involved with, uh, with mountain bike advocacy in the first place? I've been in the organization now for about five years. I just started as an at-large board member, just showing up to meetings and trying to help out where I could. What got me involved is the uh, kind of the blessings and disguises that we have here. We have so much backcountry land that a lot of actual trail building hasn't occurred specifically for mountain biking. I used to live out in Seattle and I sold real estate there and I got up to uh, Whistler and Vancouver quite a bit. And uh, that's when I discovered free ride downhill and feature rich trails. And I fell in love with them ever since. And when I moved back to Roanoke, there were hardly any, well, I think just we had one trail that had jumps on it. So that's when I started getting involved in advocacy about five years ago. I was like, we need more trails like they have out in the Northwest. And uh, in Ian, what about you? How long you've been involved and uh, what got you into advocacy in the first place? I think I've been around since I believe it was 2017, right out of high school. While I was in high school, I was racing. Once I started building more trails and working with local trail builders out here that I kind of grew up with, I, I wanted to see more building opportunities develop. And the only way that I saw to do that was to get my hands in there and start having the discussion, start trying to build trails, uh, start designing. Um, one of our local kind of bike mentors, Ken Lee, he said, Hey, you're, you'd be very interested in this. And he brought me to my first board meeting. And, uh, after about two or three meetings, he stopped coming and I kept coming just kind of, cause he set the hook and, uh, I kind of hung around there until they voted me on as a at-large member. And then shortly at thereafter, I moved up into trails coordinator. Yeah, it's it's great to hear. I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that that get into racing from uh, you know a competitive aspect or or whether it's racing or, or any type of of competition. Especially, I think now we're lo- we're seeing you know a lot of involvement now with programs like NICA in the United States, uh, here in Canada, and, and at least in where I am, we've got some high school race leagues as well. And it's great to kind of see that. But the transition from doing that to getting those uh, those folks involved with advocacy, I think is, it, it takes a, well, in, in your particular case, it took one person <laughs> kind of, you know, leading you to water, if you will, leading you to this board meeting and kind of getting you involved that way, which is, which is great. Yeah. That's basically exactly how it happened. <laughs> Stuart, you, you had mentioned earlier to me just before we, we hit record on this, that, that you've got a background in, in lobbying. Uh, and so what, what was that background? What did you do? And, and I assume that kind of, uh, bridges quite well with uh, with this work in advocacy. Yeah, I worked in uh, Washington 
um, for various political interests about 25 years ago. And one of the things that I was mentored to do was train in how to run a 501c4 advocacy organization. It's a little bit different than working with a 501c3 nonprofit trail building organization, but some of the things have carried over into what we're doing and basically giving me a blueprint for how to be an effective organization as opposed to kind of randomly doing things and seeing what works. Yeah, actually, there's a very early on in the podcast uh, history, and, and perhaps a lot of folks haven't even heard the episode, but there's actually a full episode that we went into about the differences between a 501c3 and a 501c4. And that was actually the moment when I was creating the podcast going, do people actually want to listen to this? Is this really <laughs> is this really a successful podcast if this is what an episode's going to be about? But I but I think it's an interesting one. And so for those that that aren't familiar and and correct me if I'm wrong cuz obviously I'm I'm dealing with completely different <laughs> tax laws here in, in Canada, but we do have similar kind of uh situations where we've got uh nonprofits and nonprofit charities um, which would be similar to a 501c3. And then we've got more political organizations, which are going to lobby. They can also, if I'm not mistaken, kind of back one particular political party or one particular political candidate. Um, the example, the, the previous episode that we discussed, they were looking at, they had a land manager that actually had uh, an elected board. And the reason why they had created a 501c4 was to try to lobby and and get mountain bike friendly board members uh, on right. this one particular land manager um, to try to get trails and and I, I assume uh, Blue Ridge Off Road Cyclists is a is a five hundred one c three is that the case? That's correct. We are a IMBA chapter, mm -hmm. um, and we are a five hundred one c three. And people need to be careful in most organizations like ours. Most trail building organizations are five hundred one c threes, and you can't directly endorse a candidate for any elected office. You can do that as a 501c4, but of course, 501c4s are not nonprofits. So donations to those organizations can't be tax deductible. With this kind of background that you have in, in lobbying, what um, what do you kind of see the the future? What do you kind of see the current state of, of mountain bike advocacy? What's kind of maybe uh, our challenges going forwards or our challenges currently? Well, I think it really depends on that relationship with the local political body. If they're very supportive of mountain biking, then you probably don't need to get into the 501c4 political action committee type yeah. of thing. If you're having a lot of difficulty in that regard, that's something and you need to address different elected officials, then you would probably need to get into a 501c4. You can do a lot of things as a 501c3, and that's one of the things that they taught us is that as a 501c3 organization, in particular ours under IMBA is an educational 501c3. Hmm. So for instance, you could educate your members to the positions, friendly or unfriendly, regarding mountain bike or mountain bike trail access any particular politician has without uh, endorsing an, uh, an opposing politician. A good example of this is what the NRA does. They they use their 501c3 nonprofit organization quite extensively to do, I guess it's a, it's a report card on particular candidates. So you'll see candidates in a pro-gun area say they're an A-rated NRA candidate, and that's an advantage. But you can do that through 
a, I believe you can do that through a 501c3 organization because you're just educating your members on that particular candidate's friendliness or unfriendliness to your issues. You're not endorsing them. You got to be careful okay. there. <laughs> yeah, I know what um, what my local organization has done during municipal elections is we've uh, we've just sent you know five questions you know trail related questions to to all of the candidates and then simply had you know this was the question this was this candidate's response and you could go across and and see each of the the candidates' response and then again you know just letting people kind of make the decision for themselves right yeah um, but you can at least uh, provide the information. Which is great. I think, I think a lot of people uh, are hesitant to kind of wade into the the political pool a little bit, and I think you know there is that as a nonprofit of of obviously not endorsing candidates, and and I get this feedback sometimes. People will listen to this show, and I assume they probably don't listen to a second episode, but I I do get emails from folks kind of saying like, you know, mountain biking is supposed to be a distraction. Why are you making this so political? And and you know, I'm I always just think that like, there's a lot of other podcasts that are probably better suited for for those folks. Um, <laughs> you know, this this is about the politics of of mountain biking, you know, is it, I think mountain biking in general can, can be very bipartisan, but at the same time, we're dealing with, with a lot of political entities and, uh, and it is politics. There's, there's a lot that kind of comes into this. That's, that's right. I mean, you're, most of us are working on, um, public lands and mm -hmm. that means you're dealing with politics, whether you like it or not. So what's the organization kind of been, been doing with, has this been a regular summer for the most part and just maybe a little bit busier out on the trails or has this summer looked vastly different than, than previous summers for you? Vastly different. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> one of the things um, that is a challenge for us is of course, you know, we get a lot of membership face to face talking to people. We have a large festival every year. It's huge. I think 60,000 people in attendance. It started off as a bike festival, but it became a multi-outdoor out uh, festival called Go Outside. We actually pour the beer at this festival. There's concerts and there's lots of events going on. And that's our primary revenue source is uh, splitting some of the beer proceeds. And without that, we've lost probably about 80% or 90% of our funding for the year. So that's been a huge hit on having discretionary cash, which we were as an organization probably blessed with more money than we needed at the time. And mm. since then, since COVID, we've actually, we've had a change in our, our focus as an organization. We've gotten a lot more trail focused. So we've gotten an excavator, we've gotten multiple work crews going on at the same time. In, in multiple areas, the need for funding is actually pretty, pretty high right now. We, you know, for instance, with an excavator, we had a repair bill that was $4,200 to replace a drive motor. We don't make that in our normal membership without uh, having outdoor festivals and events to raise funds and do donations. It's all been online and it's been quite a challenge. What would you say the the focus of the organization was before? You know, you you had that shift to trails. Was it just simply that that there was more events, or or what was the organization previous to this? I think it started off as a trail focused organization, and and it kind of got into more of the uh, the ride aspect, and we were doing a lot of rides. 
and that's still a very valid thing to do as an uh, uh you know mountain bike advocacy organization because of some of the difficulties in gaining access to trail building you know that just didn't become an emphasis of the organization at the time but we're building trails now you know it sounds like you had a, a bit of a, a rainy day fund coming into 2020 obviously you know huge financial loss not having uh, this major event happening um, which sounds like a, a fun event uh, by the way <laughs> oh yeah um and uh and so you know are, is there is there some repositioning like are you trying to diversify a little bit are you trying to get funding through other means or is it simply you know you got enough to kind of get you through this year and hopefully by next year you can kind of launch this get outside event again or you know what what's what's it look like financially for you we're in a decent spot right now because we did have a lot of rainy day funds because we were able to you know get a lot of funds during our festival events but because we hadn't been using equipment and machinery and going through the attrition that that generates, we weren't using those funds. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully this time next year, you know, everything will be normal again. Right. Yeah. And, uh, we'll bo- have both trails and funds to support them. Uh, we've also applied for several of the IMBA grants, the dig in grants through IMBA mm-hmm. um, that's helping fund us doing, we can do a little bit of crowd, uh, funding as well. You know, we just, we've been leaning on our potential donors. Um, yeah. And many of them stepped up and helped us out. It's been very encouraging. Another thing that's really helped out was um, the Trail Forks Trail Karma Month. Once we started utilizing it during that month, we saw a, fa- a fairly decent amount of response from it. Uh, I think the incentive for raffles was a, was a really big uh, draw. That's great. I uh, I totally forgot about uh, about that. I mean, I I obviously I used to be very involved in Trail Forks. I worked for them for five years, and uh, and so it's been. A, I think it's been a little over a year now since I've I've worked for them. But it's it's great to kind of see that they they still are focused on on these organizations. That was always something they they kind of knew that when they they hired me that trail associations were important. I don't know if they quite understood what trail associations were. I think like many mountain bikers, they, they just thought like, oh yeah, trail associations are good. We need them. Right. You know, and then not really sure what it is that, that they actually do, you know, and it comes down to Stuart, you mentioned it. Like we, we recreate on, on land that isn't ours. <laughs> And so I don't think the vast majority of mountain bikers fully grasp that concept. Um, and, and so the folks at pink bike, you know, when they created trail forks, I don't think they fully grasped the concept, but when they brought me on, on board that, you know, I don't think they, they quite knew who they were hiring even to be honest with you, but I came into it with a, a background in, in advocacy and, uh, and, and made sure to voice my opinion on the fact that like, this is, this is the way that you support the bike community is by supporting trail associations. And I'm always so impressed with, with kind of that work, you know, they've, they've had to change their funding model recently. Cause obviously you don't make money giving an, an app away for free. So they've, they've had to add that pro feature where now you can pay for premium membership and that kind of stuff. But they've always made sure that, you know, if, if you're a trail builder, if you're an advocate, if you're a trail association, you get access to that, that pro membership for free. So if either of you aren't on the the pro membership, you can just send in an application and they'll give it to you for free. So they've always been supportive of advocacy and it's good to kind of still see that. That's good to hear that it was successful. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say one of the usual supporters of mountain bike trail building is your local bike shop. 
And although many bike shops have done pretty well during COVID, all bike shops right now, from what I've gathered talking to the shop owners, are kind of under a cloud of uncertainty whether they'll be able to get inventory. Yeah. And so they're very, you know, they're they're like, yeah, I have some money, but I don't know if I should save it for a rainy day fund or, you know, try to help you guys out right now. And And I certainly during COVID would not put pressure on them to try to, you know, encourage them to tap into that rainy day fund when they don't know whether they'll be able to get bikes, you know, or inventory. That's a, that's a really good point. I think, and I've heard this amongst other advocates where it's like, well, these bike shop, because I mean, we deal with a a trail adoption program on the North shore and and one of those big adopters that we take on is, is bike shops. And as much as bike shops are not the most lucrative businesses within a community, but, um, but it's a good relationship for them. You know, I think a lot of people within a community expect the local bike shop to sponsor a trail, but it's it financially, it can be challenging for them. And I've heard people say like, well, these bike shops are doing great right now, but it's a, it's a, a great kind of perspective that yes, they're doing great right now, but <laughs> you know, we're not out of the woods yet on this thing. You know, who knows how long, uh, COVID going to be around for, you know, it's, uh, I think we, we're all putting a lot of faith in the fact that there's a, there's a vaccine around the corner, but it's going to take a long time before we all get it. And, uh, and, and, you know, we have the potential for another long winter and, and who knows, who knows what summer's going to look like too. Right. That, uh, trail adoption, um, that was kind of, cause me and Stuart are always talking. We're, I mean, I think my girlfriend might get jealous sometimes of how much me and Stuart talk. Um, <laughs> no comment. But we, <laughs> um, that the uh, trail adoption idea came up a while in the past, and um, I think our the idea was kind of put on the shelf um, for to kind of think about it when we have the time. Um, but I think our concern, just initially when we were thinking about it was having somebody be an adopter, uh, an adoptee and, um, saying, well, I need to go work on trail and then just going out there without yes. informing us and without yeah. informing the land manager. Yeah. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on how that adoption program works? Yeah. You know, this a, it's a, and this is the thing with, um, sweat equity, right? You know, when we, we take on ownership, of things. And and that can be a really good thing, but at the same time, you know, it, again, it's, this is not our land, um, in, in all sorts of ways. As well, it's not our land in the colonial sense, but it's also not our land in other senses too. <laughs> and, and so, but you know, when you build a trail or you maintain a trail or you adopt a trail, you take on that ownership, right. And, and you want that from people, like you want people to have buy-in, but at the same time, you don't want them to go too far with that. And it can be a real challenge. And so one of the ways, and I think there's a lot of different ways to do, I don't think that, that the model that the North Shore Mountain Bike Association does is the most, the only way or the only way that it would work, but how it kind of worked for us was we would have a a tap builder. So a trail adoption program builder, and then we would have a sponsor 
And those two entities would be working together. The other thing that is certainly unique on the North Shore, we had so much work to do to catch up. Um, we have an, a, a very similar to, to you where trails were not purpose built for mountain biking. They were hiking trails that got taken over by bikers or they were illegally built mountain bike trails. And they were also built during a, a time when flow was not a word used by mountain bikers. Um, and so they're old and they're beat up and they're janky and, and, you know, people like them because they're difficult, but you know, we would always say that erosion is not a technical terrain feature. And so, um, you know, but it kind of, it became the thing where like, man, it was so gnarly to ride on the North shore. Cause you're riding in this trough and it's like, well, it's a trough because it's eroded because of water for the last like five years. And, you know, is that really a great trail? I mean, it's hard to ride, but uh, you know, I think everybody's got a different opinion on it, but what we recognized, we had all this work to do. We had to catch up on all this maintenance. We weren't actually allowed to, to maintain the trails for a really long time. We, we weren't allowed to build new trails for a really long time. Although certainly illegal trails happen as they do. The void is always filled by, by people willing to, to, to put in the work. And, and so every year there was maybe a handful of public trail days and it was great. You get a hundred people showing up to these trail days, but you know, when you have a hundred people in the woods, it's kind of argue, you can argue whether or not they did more damage or, or good. You know, it's like, it was great. Everybody feels really good about themselves. They, they pat themselves on the back. And I, I remember one, one day in particular planting trees with some, some youth. It's a high school program and working with the land manager. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're sitting on the tailgate of this land manager's truck. And he turns to me and he says, so do you think we planted more trees than we killed today? <laughs> <laughs> And that was kind of what our trail days looked like. It was like, we would put in a lot of good work, but then because trail days never happened, what would inevitably happen is you'd have a trail day on the Saturday on Sunday, everybody would go ride the trail because the trail day just happened on it. And any work that you did that was good would get destroyed by an influx of people riding the trail the day after. So it just wasn't a sustainable way for us to maintain the trails. So what we recognized was we kind of needed to throw some money at the problem. And we actually found a bunch of builders and we paid them and we didn't pay them to do trail work. We paid them to lead trail days. And, and so, you know, it's still expected that these builders are going to go out there and they, they volunteer a ton of time. I still volunteer a ton of time working on the trails that I, that I help to maintain. But when I take out a group of, you know, eight or, you know, previous to COVID 16 people, whatever it might be. And we go do a public trail day. Um, you actually get paid for those days to lead those days, but you know, with money comes paperwork. And so there's also this, you have to create a work plan. You've got to submit a work report. You know, that's an expectation that we have of the paid builders, but it meant that we were, we were, we had somebody who a could kind of wrangle the sponsor, you know? So when you got that bike shop that kind of came in and be like, Oh, we're so stoked to kind of get into this trail. And, you know, we got a big vision for this trail. We want to put jumps everywhere. You're like, okay, <laughs> love the energy. But at the end of the day, you know, we need to work with the land manager to get approval for this stuff. And so then there was an expert there working with those really energetic adopters and, you know, you certainly had some adopters that came into it, like super excited that they're putting their name on a trail and to do all this work on a trail and, and be a little disappointed that like they couldn't, you know, turn it into the next A-line. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think a lot of people's introduction to trail building sometimes. Um, and, and I think we lost a couple of adopters because of that as well, but at the same time we've gained, I mean, we, we started with, I think five adopters and I think this, this past year or 
the year before we had something like 40 trails and 40 adopters. Wow. Um, and so, and now I think we've got, we're up to like 20 or 25 builders as well. Um, and it's, it, so it's been a successful program, but you need that, you need a point person that's with the organization that either works with the land manager, has permission, you know, that has that advocacy mindset, um, working with the adopter. You can't just kind of get a sponsor and be like, Hey, you're the sponsor of this trail and not have somebody there kind of holding their hand and managing them. Um, cause that is, uh, people can run amok, right. And you get that like instant, like badge where it's like, I'm, I'm the sponsor. I can, I can do what I want on this trail. Right. And it's like, you know, we, we need, we need funding, we need sponsors, but at the same time, we still need to follow the rules. We still need to, you know, build the trail that's appropriate for the community. Yeah. I see that happening a lot more where there's going to be a lot, uh, kind of a hybrid relationship where you're going to have people paid, even if they're not full-time staff, you're, you're going to need quality people that are accountable and they're going to need to be paid at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I mean, I work in an industry as an outdoor educator. I teach avalanche courses in the winter. I teach survival courses in the summer. I used to be a mountain bike instructor, you know, for the last 15 years, I've worked in what I call the, the passion industry. And, and that being, you know, what I mean by that is people do this work because they're passionate about it, but there's an inherent problem when you pay people in passion, a, you're not paying them a livable wage, um, which means that a lot of people that are really good eventually will leave um, because we need money. That's just how the world is. Yep. <laughs> Families need to be fed, that kind of stuff. So sometimes you can lose these people that are really great for the organization, but due to personal reasons, they have to, they have to move on. And then the other aspect too is, is sometimes when you're left with people that are only passionate, you get a bunch of passionate people that are potentially problematic and argumentative and drama ensues kind of thing. And I think any of us who have been involved with advocacy probably have a story. And and unfortunately, these are never stories that are talked about on the podcast because they're sensitive for each of our communities. But, you know, we all have that drama within the organization or the community or or what have you, where it's like, you know, there's, how do you fire a volunteer kind of thing, right? And oh yeah, I've had these conversations with people where it's like, if this person was an employee, you would have just let them go a long time ago because they're toxic for the organization, <laughs> but they're a volunteer and say, well, you can't follow, fire a volunteer. And I would argue that, yes, you can, you can fire a volunteer, but um, nonetheless, that's, that's, I think one of the challenges with these passion types of projects is that you get, you can, you can get a lot of people that, that perhaps need to just walk away and, and need to move on to something else. And, uh, you know, I, just because, just because the organization is a nonprofit does not mean that people can't get paid within the organization. And, and obviously you need a, you need a board, you need a committee and, you know, you have to be sensitive to conflicts of interest and and that kind of stuff. But um, when you pay people for good work, you get good work. Yes. (laughs) You get what you pay for. And, and it's, it's a big hurdle because most mountain bike communities come and have started as all volunteer communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you're saying that at some point you're like, Hey, we need to start paying some people to do stuff that was volunteer work in the past. And there's a long history of that volunteer stuff. And people are like, no, that's not why I volunteered for five years. I didn't get paid. And it's a hurdle. It's a hurdle. And it's a challenge that we're going through right now. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I assume you guys don't have paid staff right now then? Not at this time, no. Especially yeah, during COVID. Yeah. yeah, we couldn't. It's definitely something that we would like to uh, do in the future. And I mean, the... I mean, I've listened to the uh, executive director podcast that you did a while back. I've listened to that two or three times, trying to go over and find everything. And the, basically, the big thing that I've that I learned from that was you really just got to jump into the whole thing. And the the experiences that some of the uh, people you were talking with had was we tried a part time, yeah, and they just found themselves doing the the full time work but not getting paid for it. Yeah. And that once you jump into 40 hours a week, everything runs smoothly. And um, we just kind of had to set up the back end of the system for that to be able to uh, hire somebody. And I think right now, I mean, I don't want to, I, I don't say this because I am in the position, but I think executive director and trail coordinator slash trail builder mm-hmm. is some of the first positions that need to be uh, starting to be reimbursed. I mean, executive director to be able to run the, the, the logistics of the organization, be able to increase funding and membership and all that stuff. Um, and then, I mean, we are, we're, we're trail building organizations. So we'd be kind of uh, mistaken to not pay somebody to go out three or four times a week and build trail and do maintenance items and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Even if it was a summer internship that you were paying people, you know, you you need to pay some builders at some point if you really want to make a lot of progress. Yeah. Well, and, and Ian, to your point, like I think I think what makes the most sense for a lot of organizations is is transitioning somebody from the board into a paid position. I know that there's challenges with that where you know it can get a little mucky sometimes. But my argument to that is is what's the alternative? You're going to bring somebody into the organization that knows nothing about the organization only to have your volunteers train them. You know, it's that that cuz that's a challenging relationship as well. You know, our our paid staff at the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, they operate they're self-sustaining. You know, it's it's not a chore for the board of directors to be giving them tasks every day or to be doing this and that, you know, we review their salary once a year and, and any type of HR concerns that comes to the board. Um, you know, we re- recently, we even created an HR committee to, to kind of deal with some of that stuff as well, but it's, they operate on their own. Right? right. But if you've got, if you're bringing in somebody that knows nothing about the organization, it, that takes a lot of work, um, from your, from your volunteers. Would you say that most of your funding comes from events or from just donors? You have a large population. Uh, Yeah. I mean, definitely North Vancouver is across the Harbor from Vancouver. So there is not only a bunch of people, but also a bunch of businesses and very large businesses as well. So, so we benefit quite greatly from that. And, And so the vast majority of the funding comes from sponsors and the land manager, which is which is something that not every community gets as well, and and it can be a challenge. Um, but we actually get a hundred thousand dollars a year from the district of North Vancouver, which is one of our land managers, one of our biggest land managers. But that could be a slippery slope as well because sometimes the the district, the land manager, kind of confuses us with one of their uh, staff. <laughs> You know, and it's like, no, 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 we're still an advocacy organization. Right. So, and, and there's, there's even just been funny email exchanges of like, you know, they'll kind of say something to us and we're like, you know, you know, we don't sit in your meetings, right? Like this isn't, you know, we're not 
the 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 land manager's mountain bike department. <laughs> now, does so. that does that present a conflict when you're doing advocacy that maybe the land manager doesn't want? Yeah, I think it's it's not a a conflict of interest in the sense that um, there's anything legally wrong with it, but I think that it creates some conflicting feelings sometimes. Yeah, uh, there are moments in which you're like, you know what, let's just take this and and deal with it because the alternative is that we wouldn't get this funding. And you know, this is why I'm also not in a leadership role. I'm an abrasive person. <laughs> And so for me, I'm like, you know, F them, like we're, we're an advocacy organization and we need to stand up to this. And you know what, who cares about this money? Let's get it somewhere else. Right. And I've even gone so far as to kind of my, my opinion sometimes, and, and I go back and forth all the time on this stuff, but, um, you know, my opinion at some points have been like, we should say no to this money. Cause it's, it's creating an issue for us sometimes. And, um, but you can kind of, you learn how to work within the, the world a little bit and, um, you know, we're dealing with something right now where one of the counselors, you know, doesn't like one of our board members for other political reasons. <laughs> and so there's, you know, a little bit of challenges with some of the funding and without getting into too much stuff, obviously, because some of the stuff is sensitive, but you know, it's, it is challenging for sure. But, but at the same time, it's their land and, yeah. and, you know, they're seeing the economic benefits of there being trails there. And I think that the land managers should be ponying up for this stuff. You know, it's tough when you're dealing with federal land managers because I mean, they're, they're strapped right. <laughs> for funding and anything. Right. Uh, and, and that's, and that's just, I mean, we deal with the same. Yeah. And, and, and then we see issues, you know, provincially or, or obviously statewide for you guys. Um, but when it comes to municipalities and not every trail organization has this benefit to actually have trails on municipal land, but municipalities get a lot of benefits from trails and whether that's tourism, which I think is the easy one to prove, although tourism has inherent challenges as well. The other one is just as a community. And I, I think that's something that we don't track really well is, and it's something that I've always wanted to know, like, why do you live here? You know, why did you move here? Where did you go to school? Where were you born? Where did you go to school? And where do you live now? And why do you live there? And it was brought up in, in the last episode. It was just one of my guests kind of said, like, we wanted to move. And my rule was like, I want to be like, you know, 25 <laughs> minutes, minutes away from the trailhead, 10 minutes from the trailhead. Right. I, and, and that's it. Right. I think that's, but we can't track those numbers. I mean, municipalities can't track those numbers. Right. I, I think you can, if you start seeing a, a, a exponential growth in the people who are moving to your community and you hit you hit on something that's actually probably the future of mountain biking and certainly the future of community development. And that's so COVID has accelerated something that was inevitably happening. And that was the, the mobile workforce. Yeah. Um, so this new mobile workforce that we're experiencing, whether we wanted to or not, or at least uh, detached workforce from the traditional office setting, which in a sense is potentially mobile. People are going to decide where to live, high net income people, based on the quality of life. And one of the things that you can change as a community is the mountain bike scene. You can increase and diversify your mountain bike trails. You can you know, um, build new trails. You can't change a lot of the things that are baked into a community, but you can change that if you have the natural resources at your disposal. So what I think you'll see is that more and more places, they're already doing this. I mean, this is kind of well-established that 
you know, there, there are communities in Rust Belt towns and communities in economically depressed areas that are discovering all the natural trails that could be built. They're building them. And people in the mobile workforce are moving to those communities because the quality of life is that much better than the big city that they came from. Vernock is interesting in the fact that, Stuart, you, you touched on the phrase uh, big city. I think Roanoke is the perfect mix of big city versus small city and small town. Like me and my girlfriend were talking about, hey, what do we want to plan in ten, like in ten years? Where do we want to be living? You know, we're in this amazing place in Southwest Virginia that if I want a big city feel, I can go downtown, but in twenty minutes, I'm in a fourteen thousand acre uh, recreation area. And you can't see people for miles. And yeah. so, I mean, just a little plug for Rona. I mean, it, it is a really amazing place to live in the fact that you can have that diversity all within a small area. Yeah, You, mm-hmm. you don't have to plug it. Uh, too many people are already well, moving here. <laughs> <laughs> they're all mountain biking. Well, yeah. A lot of people are coming here because of the mountain biking. Uh, I will say that on our trail volunteer cruise, we are seeing so many people from New York, Long Island, and they've moved to places like Roanoke and they're doing it all over the country. And they did it because they can, they, they literally can ride from their house to the trailheads. They can afford to buy a house that's a quarter of the cost of, uh, of living wherever they came from. We just, if community leaders realize that and they, they, they take advantage of the natural resources that places like Roanoke has, you know, they, they should step up and fund trails. Ian, you spoke to the, that, that bigger city feel, right? I think at the same time, municipalities can be putting in funding to trails. They can also be revitalizing downtown cores. And and we're seeing this with like a resurgence of, and I don't always know what to call it, but it's, you know, artisan shops or booty, small businesses. Right. And, and I know right now they're struggling because of COVID, but we were seeing a bit of a renaissance from a lot of these things and, and some businesses are more successful than others, but you know, I always look to, and, and, uh, you know, it's, a, I'm, I'm biased because I enjoy it so much, but I always look at the craft brewery scene and how much we are seeing a massive hit to big breweries you know, craft breweries are, are taking over and there's a great relationship I find all over North America amongst trail associations and breweries. If, if they're not a sponsor, they need to become a sponsor, <laughs> whatever community you're in. <laughs> um, Cause if you haven't figured it out, bikers like beer. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a really cool thing to kind of see that where if you, you simply just adjust as a municipality, you adjust and loosen some of your, your laws to get a license. As far as allowing these breweries to get in there, you kind of revitalize this down town core and then you you increase this this access uh piece of things and and you suddenly create a community that is is vibrant and has something for everybody as well right it's not just you know the one person in the family that likes to mountain bike it's it's you know there's something for everybody within a family to kind of move to a location as well which is which is great i mean some of us want to live in a cabin in the woods <laughs> maybe yeah. Ian, that's what you want right but others of us want yeah. you know we want to be close we want to have things that are at our disposal and so you know there there used to be this like you got one or the other you could move to a small town and get 
amazing trails or access to skiing or mountains or rivers or whatever it was, but you lost this, this sense of, of, of a nice, vibrant cultured, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm putting cultured in air quotes because I wouldn't call my local brewery cultured by any means, but, um, you know, this cultured experience, um, and now you can get that in small towns as well, which is great. I think more industries need to maybe look at that model to try to figure out how it works. You know, we're seeing restaurants, you know, really, just, you know, we're not going to our, our regular, uh, chains anymore. Like I think in a lot of respects, you know, when I go out for dinner, I am not going to a place that I can go to in more than one city. <laughs> I yeah. don't want that. I don't want that for dinner. Yeah. You know, if, if I got one of those back home, I'm not going there as a tourist. I'm not going there. Uh, but also, <laughs> but also in my own hometown, I'm, I'm not, I want something that's unique. I want something that's special. And, and that's what I think a lot of communities are starting to, to really see right now, which is great. The culture that comes with like farmers markets and craft breweries, um, and like small, your small bike shops, uh, Vernuk really has that in spades. I think when I go to a, a town, I like to explore that kind of culture. Like with Whistler, I tried to get a feel for, hey, where do the locals go? But yeah. I mean, I, I was still in Whistler, but I mean, it was really cool. Like I went all the way back into uh, Evolution Bike Shop. So, I mean, I was in the back of Whistler, but they were some of the nicest people. And I'm like, that's the place where locals go. So that like hometown feel. Yeah. Well, and that's an interesting thing. I mean, things have changed now because Vale uh, owns Whistler and that's a whole other thing that I can get into. But um, it's, I always, I always joke that like, it's no wonder that every single cult classic ski film is about a big resort taking over the tiny resort and ruining it. <laughs> it's, it's <just laughs> the tale, tale is old as time in the ski world. But um, this previous to the Vale days, um, I, I sat in a, in a marketing meeting with the folks at, at Whistler Blackcomb. And what they actually said was they would create all these fun events during the week for the locals and they'd give discount passes to locals and they would do these, um, they called them fat Wednesdays and, yeah, uh, and they were Wednesday. fun, yeah, oh, yeah. fun r- bike races. And the whole thing was that, um, what people want when they go to those communities is that they want to know what it's like to be a local. And if you're going to go to a pub and, you know, if you're going to do your APRE and and to use the ski example, if you're going to go to APRE after skiing (laughs) and it's just a bunch of other tourists there, that's not what you want. You want locals to be there. And so in, in some respects, it's your locals that deliver on the actual product. You know, they're the thing that makes the town what it is. They're the thing that makes it special. And so if you're not as, as a, as a marketing, as a, as a tourism destination, if you're not appealing to your locals to make sure that they're maintaining the thing that it is that you're marketing to the tourists, then, then you're not going to have a, a very good product for very long. And, and I'm, I'm really curious to kind of see what happens over the next little while with Whistler, because there is a huge shift right now in, in how how the ski resorts being run um, this year with, with Vale. We, I like to say all hail Vale um, kind of thing. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so it's, it'll be interesting to see, cause it's definitely not that mindset happening right now. And so I'm, I'm I wonder what it's going to be like, like, you know, when I, the next time I go out to the GLC on a, on a Saturday or Sunday night and go see this, you know, band called the hair farmers, is it just going to have the same feel that I remember it? Or is it just going to be different? Or maybe the hair farmers have taken off. Maybe they don't even live there anymore because the place has changed and they've moved somewhere else. I don't know. Hard to afford it. (laughs) 
<laughs> totally, that's the other. Well, and that's, I mean, that is a challenge that I, I don't know how to address that one. I think it's just, it, that's just markets, right? And, and supply and demand. So there's a couple of things I want to kind of do just to wrap up our, our conversation. The, the first is, it sounds like people are moving to Roanoke. Oh yeah. Um, is is that something that the municipality is actively trying to attract, or is it just the fact that it's beautiful there and so people are coming? It's both. It's definitely beautiful here, and people are coming because of that. But it's also, I think, um, a change in the way we're all going to be living in the future. We're not going to need to live in a big city in order to have a good paying job. You're going to be able to work remotely and then you decide where you want to live and not your job. And people are going to pick where they live based on the quality of life. And quality of life here is pretty good. We don't like to let that out too much, but it's pretty good. And it's very cheap. So the last thing that I kind of want to just finish up on is, is what do you guys have kind of in the plans? What are you, A, what are you kind of planning over the winter? Is it simply just a, a hunker in the bunker kind of thing? Um, are you a snow community where things just shut down normally for you as a mountain bike organization in the winter? Um, are you planning kind of for, for next summer? What's kind of the trajectory? And, and I, I always like to say, like, I like to, to understand what do we think the future is going to be? But I think right now it, it might be more realistic for us to just even ask us, like, what's the present? Because I think the present is ever so changing and evolving. I think it's going to be one where we're getting access to build a lot of trails. Success builds success. And we've been very successful over the last year at sponsoring and building new trails. And it's looking like we're going to have more opportunity than we have ability. So things are good. Well, guys, just thanks so much for, for taking the time to chat with me. This has been a, a great conversation. It's kind of great to hear from, from the two of you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank, thank you, Brent. I really appreciate everything. This episode of the podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo Nations. My guests join me from the traditional territory of the Halawa Saponi. If you're curious to learn more about the traditional territory that you occupy and recreate on, then visit native-lands.ca. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. And you can send me an email or audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Huge thanks to Ernest, Susie, Kyle, and Eric for your extremely valued support and financial contributions to the podcast. Don't forget that you can support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. In the show notes, you'll also find links to the Blue Ridge Off-Road Cyclists. And a big thanks to my guests, Ian and Stuart. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Welnack and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. I can't tell you exactly when the next episode will be out, but it will be in the new year. As this is my last episode of 2020, I wanted to wish everybody a happy holiday. To those celebrating the final night tonight, happy Hanukkah. And to others, Merry Christmas, happy Festivus, whatever it is that you celebrate. There's a lot of positive things on the horizon. But we still have a long way to go this winter. 
So take care of each other, take care of yourselves, and we'll see you in 2021. As always, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy holidays.